we see ourselves as body, mind and spirit, as we see a car, as the car body, the driver and the journey, it's easy to then work out what we need to do in each of those to have really good mental health and feel consistently well. A little bit more about the body. How does that work? Well, just like a Ferrari, it's an amazing machine and it's got thousands of bits and all of them need to be functioning properly for uh, for the car to, to have optimum performance. And with that, you would put really good fuel in it and you wouldn't run it very long if you didn't change the oil and put water in it and everything. It's the same with our human body. We've got so many different organs that all need to be looked after housed in a human body uh, our body is just to get us around um, so that we can move from one place to the other and, and achieve stuff so that's the the purpose of of the body so we're looking at the spirit how does that work well in this context it's it's our life journey having a plan having a goal working with other people but having basically a reason to live Maslow's order of basic human needs. It is a fantastic way to base your whole of life. It's depicted in a pyramid with five tiers. The foundational level is physiological needs, which include survival needs. Things like we need to breathe, we need air to survive, our need for food, need for water and for sleep. All these things are necessary just for survival. If foundational needs aren't met... The human body struggles to function. We can't think, we can't relate, and all other needs become secondary. So our foundational level for our need for food, water and sleep, if that's not met, we struggle. We live in this most amazing vehicle. Our body, the vehicle that we live in, is actually run by our brain. It's got a big computer that runs our body And that computer, our brain, is actually 200 million times more powerful than your laptop. And if you stack your laptops up, one on top of the other, it would reach all the way to the moon. That's how powerful our brain is. How does it work? Well, your brain manages everything that's going on in your body, all of the chemistry that's going on. Every time we move an arm or a leg, there's a message that's sent from our brain down our nervous system, down our spine, that says move. So your brain looks after everything. Every time we take a breath, we don't have to think about breathing. Your brain has been, let's say, programmed to do all of those things without us actually processing or thinking. There's a whole lot of stuff goes on in the background too. Like my brain, when I was born, knew the formula for human blood and it started making it. It didn't need to evolve over a thousand years to get the formula right because if it got it wrong in the first place I'd be dead. Their subconscious brain, if you want to call it that, knows how to balance the the chemicals in their kidneys. It knows how to make stomach acid, but it knows how to make stomach acid in a way that it will digest your food but it won't digest the wall of your stomach. And there's all sorts of chemicals going on like balancing your blood sugar and all that sort of thing and we're just born with that. And this amazing computer is is running it all in the background even while we're sleeping. Water is essential to all life. A human can only survive a couple of days without any water. We die if we don't drink water, if we... Our brain is 80% water, as we've said before, and water's the 
best drink that we can drink, if we want optimum function with our brain and our body, water is the very best drink that we can drink. So what things does it affect in, in our body? If we're dehydrated, headaches. The first, one of the first signs of dehydration is a headache. We can't focus properly. We feel tired. Our mood is generally poor. We often feel lethargic and you feel a bit flat, you feel a bit sad. And that's often just dehydration. Most people might reach for a Panadol when they feel a bit headachey or just tired and flat. But a, a big glass of water actually restores some energy and restores the water into our cells. Your car, after a while, needs regular maintenance. Uh, the oil sort of gets a bit cloggy and maybe you get some sludge here and there and your spark plugs, if you have spark plugs, get clogged up and everything. So you take it off the road and people pull it apart and flush it out and sort out all the bits and pieces. And our human body, our brain particularly, needs to be taken offline occasionally, regularly. Regularly. And... Yeah, and have some, some maintenance. Unfortunately, our brain's programmed to do its own maintenance. We don't have to take it down to a German engineer or anything to have it done. After two days without sleep, our brain starts to hallucinate. That's how important sleep is to us. And sleep really affects every area of health. Researchers recently found that the greatest benefit of sleep is a physical one. Just like our body has a lymphatic system that flushes all the toxins out of our body... Our brain being kept safe and secure with the blood-brain barrier has its own cleansing system called the glymphatic system. And what happens there is during sleep, our brain is 10 times more active because of the energy required to cleanse. But it and shrinks too, doesn't it? Our actual brain cell shrinks up to 60% during sleep so that cerebral spinal fluid can flush through our brain and cleanse all the toxins out. So, you know, on a on New Year's Day, if you've stayed up and watched all the fireworks and some people may have partied a little bit too much, you feel like your head's got cotton wool in it and you're woozy and you can't think. That's the feeling that happens when we haven't had that the, the toxins flushed out. Nutrition's really important to our mental health and our well-being. But nutrition is fundamental to good energy supply, to brain function, to mood regulations, to all of our health and well-being. So what food will help our brain? Fresh fruit and vegetables are the best foods that we can eat. Naturally, we need protein. Most of us don't eat enough fresh fruit and vegetables. Green leafy vegetables, it affects how well we learn, it affects our behaviour, our concentration... Our energy supplies are really important. If Trev's mood starts to get a bit low, we just put sardines on the bench to tell him that he needs some sardines because sardines have omega-3 and omega-6 and they're a fantastic anti-inflammatory. So fish, cold water fish, salmon, sardines, uh, tuna, they're all fantastic brain foods. That fish is a very underrated food for mental health. The other thing for mental health too is to eat regularly. It's really important that for your mood, um, and Trev will talk a little bit about his blood sugar levels with eating regularly. 
When I was in my teens, 20s, whatever, I used to think that if I only had one meal a day, I wouldn't put on weight. Uh, and I used to have that meal probably in the evening. So I used to head off to work with nothing in my stomach, probably a cup of coffee or something. These are the things that caused my, my crash, I'm sure, uh, mm. because yeah, keeping your blood sugar regular or regulated, I should say, is a real key to mental uh, stability and how well you feel. So regular meals are really important. We're going to give you some simple feedback loops to empower you to manage your health, both physical and mental. When we don't eat enough fruit and veggies and, and don't drink enough water, we struggle to go to the toilet to poo regularly and we might only produce bunny bullets. When we eat plenty of fruit and veggies and we drink enough water, it ensures that we'll produce a sausage poo and it does actually result in improved mood and behaviour. So the first feedback loop for nutrition is a sausage poo. If you're doing a sausage poo, you're eating enough fruit and veg. If you're not, you're producing bunny bullets and you need to increase your fruit and veggies and drink some more water. Best way to tell if you're drinking enough water is by the colour of your wee when you go to the toilet. And our wee colour should be a pale wheat colour. And if it's orange or yellow, you need to drink some more water because your body's actually starting to dehydrate. Those simple feedback loops around your poo and your wee, little children love talking about wee and poo. Like as we get older, we sort of go, oh, they're things we shouldn't talk about. But you can teach a child at a very young age to manage their nutrition and hydration just by what comes out in the toilet. And the other, the other feedback loop is for sleep. When you get up in the morning, if you feel cranky and if you're whingy, you need to get to bed earlier and get some more sleep. It's really quite simple. But if you wake up in the morning and you've got a smile on your face and you feel good, you've had enough sleep and you feel like actually getting out and doing what you're going to do through the day. So those three things, um, your poo, your wee and how your face looks in the morning are just really simple feedback loops that anyone can manage to improve their physical and their mental health. Okay, well, if we imagine Maslow as a ladder, the first rung is the physiological, which is your food, water and sleep. After that's been established, we need to feel safe. Safety can be safe from physical harm or psychological harm or whatever, but without that, we can't progress on to belonging or learning or feeling great or self-esteem or whatever. So uh, some of the things that can stop us feeling safe and not feeling safe in the family, not feeling safe in the neighbourhood, not feeling safe at school or whatever. That's the um, the second rung. Yeah, we all like to know that our world's ordered, that we've got some sort of control in it, and that helps us to feel safe. Routines can help children feel safe. Having a bedtime gives someone an idea on when they go to bed, when they wake up, even what sort of foods we eat and what are treats and when we have treats. All of these things help a child to have direction and safety. Our government gives us laws, police enforce them. That's all for our safety. And as Trev said, we need to feel safe within our family. We need to feel safe with the people that live in our house. We need to feel safe at school if we go to school. 
Well, we feel safe when we belong in a tribe or in a community, in a family. We live social lives. We don't actually do very well in isolation. We're actually born into tribes because our our family really is our immediate tribe. Another tribe that we belong to is the neighbourhood that we live in. From a very early age, a young child relies on its parents. The parent provides for all of their needs. They provide safety and they learn to rely on their parents. They they expect their parents to provide for them, to, to satisfy the need for love, for warmth. And when these things are provided, they actually learn to trust that their needs will be met. When the needs aren't met, we start to have issues around belonging and feeling safe and learning how to trust people. So the first sense of belonging is with our family, with our parents, and we continue to seek belonging all our lives. We all continually in our lives look for where we fit. Uh, small children in a kindergarten, they, they find their mates in the kindy and that's where they fit. And when we go to school, if we're musical, we join a music group, or if we like craft, we join a craft group. And that's not just at school, we join a sporting club and that becomes a part of our life and that's a part of where we fit, where we belong, where we function. It's not only um, for our mental and emotional well-being, it's how we grow, it's how we're challenged, it's how we learn new skills. We, we learn to cooperate with people in a team, people that we do the same things with. This happens when there's an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds our ability to cope. Often we don't have the skills to cope with a traumatic event that happens, but it could be just trauma that has been present throughout our life. We've talked about serve and return in relationships where you might have eye contact with someone and that eye contact is looking for a, a response or when you have a conversation, you expect a like a tennis match in the conversation, the serve and return. If that's absent, we can experience disconnection and when that's longer term, we can experience trauma. Even living in a chaotic environment can lead to trauma. Violence in the home, bullying, living with someone who has a mental illness creates a certain amount of tension and trauma. Or even listening to other people's problems mm. uh, can be traumatic. You know, if you listen to enough of them, like if you're a hairdresser or a, I don't know, a counsellor or whatever, or a pastor, and you look continually listening to other people's problems, it can build up and become vicarious trauma in your own life. We set up a situation where we were looking at face-to-face -face interactions between mothers and infants, and we filmed those, and we okay. would code the baby's facial expressions and the mother's facial expressions. We wanted to understand the relationship between them. After playing, a period of playing and engagement with the infant, we then signaled the mother to hold a still face, to not use her hands, to not talk, and just look straight ahead. And the effects on the infant were really uh, quite dramatic. Right away, almost every infant picks up that the mother is no longer responding. Mm -hmm. 
babies have all these ways of trying to get the mother's attention. When we saw Analia today, she does the, a fake cough with her mother. They may start self-comforting by sucking on their hand. They may lose postural control, and they become increasingly withdrawn. If we can see these kinds of effects in two minutes, one can begin to think about the child who comes from a neglectful home. If that experience is not changed, if the child's experience of chronic stress does not improve, then that brain can have long-term behavioral consequences. In the Stillface experiment, psychologists identified four infant behavioral responses when a parent kept a still face. So instead of if the child looks at you and goos and you goo back, instead of the interaction that normally happens between a child and a parent, the parent held a still face. And there were four definite behavioural responses to the parent holding a still face. And they were, the child gave a fake cough to gain mum's attention. She started sucking her thumb, self-comforting. She started thrashing around in her seat. So that was a loss of control. And then she just sat back and became very withdrawn and sunk into herself. So they were four definite responses that were identified and those responses are really obvious in a small child. But those four responses still happen in life as we grow into adulthood. But we just learn how to mask them a bit better. We get really clever at hiding. <laughs> so the four, the, the four responses, the first one, the fake cough, can become varying degrees of illness. And whether they're real or imagined, like we have hypochondria, often the child says, Mum, I've got a pain in the tummy today. And they might not have a pain in the tummy. They just might want to stay home. They just might want to spend some time with Mum. That's the progression of looking for attention through a fake cough and illness. The self-comforting moves into varying degrees of addiction or experimentation with, say, drugs, alcohol, looking to numb pain. And loss of control, it's where we thrash around. Bullying can be a part of that violence in the home. And withdrawal means that we sink back into ourselves. We isolate, we become depressed, we can become anxious, we don't want to interact with people. We might move into our bedroom and become a gamer and not interact with anyone. So are you saying that they're all symptoms of... Disconnection. They're all symptoms of disconnection around you, like if somebody, if you're feeling abandoned... When we're in relationship with someone, it's expected that we will get a response in some way. Like if I look at you, I expect you to look back at me and to listen to what I say and then to have a response. If you look at that from an adult point of view, like the ultimate rejection could be divorce, it could be uh, losing a job. So if you carry those infant behaviours through to adulthood, a way of handling a divorce could be that you get sick. It could be that you numb the pain with some sort of an addiction, whether that's booze, pornography, whatever. Gambling. Gambling, alcohol. or you can start fighting with people. That's another um, adult reaction to um, abandonment. Or you can just isolate, get depressed. The two ways are generally related to acting out or acting in, withdrawing. Shame is the engine that drives all addiction. 
When people start to uh, deal with addictions, generally they focus on the actual addiction. You know, is it drugs or is it alcohol? Is it pornography? Is it violence or whatever? Uh, domestic violence, all those things. They try to put the bushfire out. They're, they're working on the, um, on the actual symptom of the problem, whereas real progress is made when people start to look at what is actually causing that addiction, what is the underlying shame, and how can we deal with the shame, because that's actually the key to recovery, to find the underlying issue uh, or issues that uh, cause trauma and actually cause the behaviours that led to the guilt, which led to the shame, which led to the attachment. Yes. The the wrong attachment. When you find yourself handling your discomfort with addictions or violence or whatever, in a quiet moment you start to feel guilty about what you're doing to the people around you and, and the guilt about um, how you're handling things. I look at it this way. Guilt is about, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing that... I don't normally do and what result is it having around me but then when you continue doing it and you've tried to stop it becomes the next word is shame so guilt if guilt is what am I doing shame is who have I become I've become a person that I never was before or didn't want to be and really don't like so you're living against your values yeah actually when we talk to a lot of people that have had um, uh, mental health problems, and I've spoken to lots of them uh, over life and street people and, and people who have a certain amount of, of guilt and shame, their nervous breakdown, let's call it that, or psychotic event, whatever, it's generally when they have this aha moment of who have I become? I am now somebody that I don't want to be. I'm now somebody that I don't like. And that awareness of being totally out of control, that's the shame. And shame, when you when you get to that point, you can either go upwards or downwards. You can go deeper into um, the addictions and things that help mask it and help you feel better. Or you can say, put your hands up and say, I really need help with this. I can't do it anymore. For hundreds of years, how we dealt with our shame is we took it to the church on Sunday. So these days we have uh, psychologists. We go along to the psychologist. I think it's about separating what we've done from who we are because often we become very mixed up. We, we think that we are what we've done rather than we're a separate person and we have this behaviour that might not be right or, or good, but it's... The, the only way we've learned to cope with things that may have happened to us and that that's the sorting out when we have any emotion rather than ignoring it to look at it to see whether it's real whether it is indicating that there is something going on and whether that something that's going on is something that I need to deal with it needs a response one of the other ways that the community deals with addiction through organizations that have been very successful like AA and NA and the basis of that is acknowledging that you are out of control. You you actually deal with the, the thing that started it in the first place. You know, they don't talk about let's wean you off um, 
booze like they do with weaning you off cigarettes or whatever. It's total abstinence. And then it's not until the anaesthetic stops that you actually feel the real pain and the underlying issue comes up. And that's why those organisations deal with shame in that way. The sense of belonging. We can be ourselves. We feel accepted for who we really are. We feel like we belong. We, we actually feel like we have value. It's where we have relationships that are built on interactive exchange, where we listen, we care, uh, we res respond and have others respond appropriately to us. It's where true happiness and true contentment in life is found. Because it's founded on the real me, not the one that's... I'm projecting to the community to cover up all the things that they don't know about. So once we've dealt with that and I become the real me, I can then have legitimate connections and legitimate relationships and I can be part of a group. I can feel that I belong because I don't feel that if they knew me, they wouldn't want me there. So You don't have to try and cover up anything about yourself because you're living honestly with, with yourself and before other people. We have a saying about intimacy. Intimacy is simply into me I see and into me I allow you to see. So I, I don't have a place where I need to hide who I am because I think that you might not like me. I can just be free to, me, to be me. Purpose and its role in providing fulfilment and happiness in life. Meaning in life does predict better health outcomes all around. Now we're going to continue on with the car analogy which we've used previously. We're going to actually compare the car to our own body and our mind and our spirit. In the car analogy, the body is actually the physical car, so we're imagining that we, we are a red Ferrari, brand new out of the showroom, and we're going to imagine that our mind has learnt to drive and we're fantastic drivers. So isn't that nice? We've got this beautiful, nice, shiny red Ferrari in the garage and we're really top drivers. Are we happy? No. It doesn't actually achieve anything until we're going somewhere. We have to use our car and our uh, driving ability to actually fulfil some sort of purpose, have a journey. And most people only move from one situation to another when they're forced to by some outside pressure or by some circumstance. We, don't act, we often don't think about where we're going and why we're going there. So to use the car analogy, if I wanted to get to a particular destination in a strange city, I have to know where that destination is. I need an accurate map to pinpoint my destination and to pinpoint where I am now and then I can work out the pathway to get to where I want to go. So in life, we need to know where we are, where we're beginning from, and that can be at any stage in our journey. It's not from birth, but now, right now, I need to understand where I am and where I want to be in life, what I want in life. And only when we understand where we are and where we want to be can we work out the steps to get there. If we've never been given the opportunity to think that we can achieve gold, say, whatever that is, if we've always been put down and made to feel that we're worthless or useless, just the thought of trying to set a, a reasonable goal can be really daunting. Just like having a goal and then working your habits toward that goal, you can do it the other way around. Once you start 
to set yourself some decent habits and you start achieving something, when you feel that achievement growing within you, you can then start to look, oh, I might be able to achieve that particular goal. So it works both ways. The once, once you decide that you want to do something, that will actually work on growing you as a person on the inside as well. So don't think that you've got to set a big goal. And sometimes we may not have a big goal for ourselves, but we might love something that someone else is doing or some other organisation and we can offer ourselves to join another person to help them achieve their goal. And in doing that, we release serotonin within ourselves. We we feel good. And volunteering is a great way to experience an organisation and see whether that is something that you want to be a part of. But the giving back releases serotonin, which helps us feel good and it promotes peace and calmness within ourselves as well. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And what would you do if nobody paid you to do it? And what makes you come alive? So those couple of questions can actually help do away with the fears that often come when you think about what you want to do. Learn to be curious. Ask lots of questions and look around for your tribe, for people and organisations that you think that you would fit with that you admire their ideals, uh, you share their values and look for people that appreciate you and the unique talents that you have because each of us does have a unique set of talents and often we don't see them. Sometimes it needs someone else to go, hey, look, you do that really well. So bottom line is we need to become aware of and learn about ourselves. And as we learn to care for ourselves and for others, we find our own personal self-worth. We find that we want to do good, that we want to give to people and we want to be kind to others. And we can find our path. If having our own personal goal is too much pressure, join another organisation, join someone else's vision and be a part of that. If we haven't had great care or great supports in our life, at any stage in our life, we can stop and learn to care for ourselves. And as we do, we come to know who we are and what we want, where we're in our relationships. And we can take for the very first time, maybe, steps that will enrich our lives. We can take responsibility for our lives. And caring for yourself may be the very first journey that you're actually thinking about planning to make. And it's a, a very important journey to make. They're actually the Maslow steps, aren't they? We've dealt with our physical needs and our relationships and then we've actually learnt to care for ourselves what we actually need to do. So learning how to have healthy relationships could be another aspect of, of the journey that we need to make. But we need to start in those areas often before we can start working on our career journey. So they're about being, being a whole person rather than doing life. So only when we know our present position can we navigate toward our desired destination. Life is meant to be shared. Have you ever been on a holiday and you saw this magnificent scenery? You were up high on a mountain and this incredible view and you turned around to share it with someone and there was no one there. I was just thinking, whenever you see a sunset or wherever you see a sunset, you yell out, Hey, come and have a look at this. I do. <laughs> but we all do that, don't we? We want to share the, the things that we're enjoying with somebody. 
Facebook and Instagram are great to share life events, but they're no substitute for real-life interaction and intimacy. And real-life interaction and intimacy boost serotonin and oxytocin, the feel-good chemicals, the calming chemicals. When we have a moment and we have someone to share it with, we do feel good. We, we feel great in sharing that. So real relationships require us to share our deepest feelings. They're not only the good ones, but the bad ones as well. All our hurts, our failures, our doubts, our fears, they allow us to acknowledge We aren't perfect, we have our weaknesses, and we have our needs. So that means trusting another person. It means taking off that mask that I'm all sufficient, I'm tough, and be able to ask for help when it's needed, to to have another person there that you trust enough to say, this is who I am, this is what I need. That takes courage. It's not a weak thing to ask for help. I think it takes more courage to ask for help, and it takes humility Because it's a really risky thing to ask another person for help or to share some of our deepest needs with another person because when we do that, we risk rejection. When we've fully maximised our talents and potential and we feel fulfilled and we're doing all that we're capable of doing, remembering that every time we reach our goal, we're going to look for a new goal. So it refers to our need for personal growth and discovery. It's present throughout all our life, that need to maximise our talents and potential. A person's always becoming. We might reach certain goals, but we're always looking to become more or to grow more. We never remain static. It can be empty as well. I, I know I was, when I was younger, I I'm a hairdresser by trade and I had my own businesses all through my life and I was a very successful business person. I had a, owned my own business, owned my own home, owned my own, I bought a sports car and that was all by the time I was 30. But I looked at my personal life and I'd been divorced twice and I was totally broken on the inside. I looked great in all of my achievements but I was broken on the inside and I got to that point I had a massive breakdown because what was life all about? It wasn't about achieving all of those external things. And this is what we've been talking about, the balance between being happy on the inside, having relationships, taking care of yourself, having boundaries um, that will help you stay safe on the journey, and then achieving things. We need to look at balance for all of those things together. Otherwise, when, when we achieve some things, we will feel empty and we'll just look to keep on achieving things to try and fill that hole that's in us. 